once you start to create too much of a gap between living in that biological system that you just spoke about with respect to nature and sunlight and soil, once you start to have too great of a gap between what our genetics were carved from, you know, several thousand years ago to this world that in some cases can be much too sterile, uh, you know, can really be missing critical families of bacteria that have to be acquired from exposure to the natural world, then your risk for chronic disease goes through the roof. Welcome to the Drew Perlman Show. Think of this podcast as the antidote to the fear, the noise, and the talking heads in the news. The show features an entertaining blend of ancient wisdom, empowering ideas, and cutting edge, healthy living science to optimize your health and your life. Let's dive in and get started. Today's guest on the show is John Bagnulo. John is a naturalist, nutritionist, farmer, and professor who teaches courses at universities and wellness centers. He also has an awesome podcast with Dr. Mark Pettis called The Health Edge. Welcome to the show, John. Hey, thanks a lot, Drew. It's great to be with you. I, you know, I really love your work. And I love your work too, John. You know, I'd love to start by just getting your thoughts on this whole pandemic and this virus of fear that is sweeping across the country, sweeping across the world. John, why is fear so damaging to our health and what do you think we can even do about it? Yeah, I mean, I think fear is, uh, you know, a certain amount of fear is, is healthy. Um, I think fear becomes a problem and, and damaging to one's health, to your point, when it starts to paralyze um, people and prevent them from living a full life uh, and pursuing, you know, whether it's self-actualization or the kind of fulfillment that we all should really be after in life, full participation, I like to call it, in life. I, you know, I, I think this pandemic is, uh, it's interesting on many levels, having, you know, coursework and in, in, in graduate um, level understanding here of epidemiology, there, there is, you know, I think quite a bit of confusion uh, amidst the public around this virus, uh, and even about what a new case is, you know, I mean, you got, you got different types of testing being used, um, whether it's PCR, antibody testing. And, you know, I think there's really good evidence that the virus has been around for probably, you know, a significantly longer period of time here in the United States than most people, uh, I, I think understand. And I've met folks who have tested positive for the virus, and I've met several of these folks that tested positive for the virus, and yet they have never been sick, or they were sick back in early February. Um, I've met people who were sick back in January with all of these COVID-like symptoms. They thought they just had the flu, um, but as they went to give blood recently, they tested positive. And there, you know, I've met a significant number of these folks, so I, I think a new case can be interpreted different ways. I mean, it could be, you know, certainly, uh, you know. Concerning if you have a new case, person wasn't aware of that, and you know they're going to be exposed to more vulnerable populations. You know that that's that's different. But I I just think that fear is at this time um, not just with respect to COVID or the coronavirus, but many aspects of life. I think people are living in a greater state of chronic fear than ever before, and and fear certainly. Um, causes changes within our nervous system. Um, it really places a greater amount of stress on not only our nervous system, but our endocrine system. And I, you know, 
whether you're looking at cortisol and the influence that has on insulin sensitivity, we know that fear, chronic fear is very damaging and it can really limit um, to the extent at which one lives their life. So it's something that I have always tried to temper. I mean, we always experience fear, all of us do. And and, and trying to put that fear in perspective, I think, is the important component to this conversation. Right. You know, it's, it's not a risk-free world, right? I mean, everybody that's born into this world has um, a significant level of risk for you name it. And our ancestors had different risks, but they still had inherent risks that came with life on this planet. And I think people need to accept some of those risks um, a little bit more, embrace those risks rather than try to live a risk-free life because that's not really attainable. And I, you know, I would really question um, how healthy that life would, would even be if someone were to somehow get that dialed in through. That's so true, John. In the last movie that we did together, you know, you talked a lot about people being afraid of nature, afraid of the sun, the dirt, the soil, the microbes, everything. You know, how do we find our way back to nature and a more natural way of life? Yeah, I mean, that's a a great question. I think it's a very important question, especially for parents who are, you know, again, as you know, well, are raising their children in a very different world than, let's say, 100 years ago. There are all these different or, or new sets of fears that parents have. And I, I really try to focus on that because I, you know, I care so much about these younger generations that are basically a, acquiring a, a world that us, the, their, their parents or grandparents have, have left them with. And, and I think, you know, one thing that people need to understand is that we all have this genetic blueprint, Drew, that has worked really well for thousands of years. And built into that genetic blueprint is a certain set of criteria that we must live within. And, you know, whether it's having contact with the soil, to your point, yeah, people are really afraid of, of soil. They, they think it carries, you know, harmful germs. They don't really appreciate the fact that it carries essential germs. And we could go on and on if we wanted to dive into that type of minutia about what microorganisms are found in a soil, in your typical garden or on, under your lawn. You know, a lot of those microbes are essential for human health and for our microbiome or even for the health of our skin. You know, you can look at the research on rugby players, for instance, and what the, their microbiome of their skin looks like. It's very, very different than a person who doesn't spend um, time in contact with, uh, with the grass or, or, or the ground. And it's just one of countless examples where we do have this thing where we wash our hands at the wrong time, right? We wash our hands probably too much after being in the garden or playing outside in the soil. Um, and maybe we don't wash our hands enough after coming back from the airport or <laughs> something like that. You know, that's, that's a whole nother conversation. But to your point, we do, we have, a, we have this unwarranted fear around the sun, the soil, and, and different aspects of nature that really help our genes work for us and not against us. A lot of it has to do with the microbiome, but there's other aspects like when we get into the sun, um, you know, or spending time out, in nature, um, in a more natural environment where we don't have, let's say, climate control and we don't have everything kind of lined up as though we would like it at home. It's just so much to that that is missing from the lives of folks who are are under this umbrella of uh, widespread fear. 
You know, John, I went into the city yesterday and there is hand sanitizer everywhere you look. They're spraying down restaurant tables with God knows what. You know, I'd love for you to talk about this hidden world, this microbial world, the the microbiome, and why it's so critical to the health of our bodies, our brains, our emotions, our immune system, everything, you name it. Yeah, yeah, they may be, um, Drew, to that point, they may be the single most important determinant of one's health. I would, if I had to bet, I'd put my, I put my money on microbes rather than genes. Now, there are a couple exceptions where, you know, someone might inherit, um, you know, very unique genetic uh, issues, let's say, um, but for the most part, genes can be turned on or off. Um, if you're missing certain families of microbes, then the deck is really stacked against you. And there are several families that would, would meet that criteria. But yes, absolutely. If you are deficient, let's say, in E. coli, which most people are afraid of E. coli because they're thinking it's all E. coli 157, which is the kind you might get an undercooked hamburger from feedlot raised meat. You know, that's a different story, but E. coli is a very broad family of bacteria that helps us produce dopamine. If you don't produce dopamine, life is a really, it's a long, um, tough road to be on. And that's just one example. You've got bifidobacter, you've got acromancia, you've got all these really critical families of bacteria that once you start to create too much of a gap between living in that biological system that you just spoke about with respect to nature and sunlight and soil. Once you start to have too great of a gap between what our genetics were carved from, you know, several thousand years ago to this world that in some cases can be much too sterile, uh, you know, can really be missing critical families of bacteria that have to be acquired from exposure to the natural world then your risk for chronic disease goes through the roof. And it's really interesting, right? We, we use excessive amounts of hand sanitizer and all these different types of antimicrobial products like trichlorosan that's in everything from toothpaste to, to, to hand, uh, hand washes. You know, so when you start to apply all these things as an effort to reduce one's sickness from infectious disease, you end up turning up the risk for so many different chronic diseases diseases because of how these um, these kind of protocols that families are using eliminate important microbes. So it's really a, you know, it's a catch-22. You can be overly sterile. Um, and that's, you know, a recipe for disaster, especially when that takes place in early childhood, because that's the window of time when, you know, a lot of us have to pick up these germs. We have to get these from our dog or from a farm animal or from working in the garden or from, you know, just rolling around in the grass if you play soccer or football. I mean, these things are just missing from so many families' lives. No question, John. You know, aside from nature and going into nature, if if we want to live against the grain and we want to create more microbial diversity, are there some food strategies that you'd also recommend? Yeah, I mean, the, the one that's easiest for folks to really grasp is the daily inclusion of a fermented food. And I would put yogurt at the top of that list from all of the, you know, scientific evidence. I mean, if you look at populations that eat yogurt every day, Drew, they have amongst the highest quality of health. And if it's not yogurt, it might be something like natto in Japan, or, you know, it might be kimchi in Korea. It might be, 
kefir or kefir in another area of, let's say, Eastern Europe. I mean, you've got different fermented foods, but yogurt is one of the most widely accepted and consumed fermented foods. And what I find most interesting, Drew, is that, you know, all of us hear about the importance of eating fruits and vegetables. And don't get me wrong. I think fruits and vegetables and more importantly, vegetables, they're front and center for so many reasons in our health. But when you compare the statistical, let's say, protection that a population gets from any one food, yogurt is hands down the most protective food anybody can eat when you look at what it does for risk reduction for just about every chronic disease. And if you consume yogurt with a meal and that meal isn't really well balanced, let's say it's too high in its glycemic load or its carbohydrate density, let's say it's got other ingredients in it that might cause problems within the microbiome. The amazing thing about yogurt is you just, when you consume that, you just buffer out so many of the negative characteristics of that meal. And you offer the microbiome a chance to accept and metabolize that meal without negative ramifications or consequences. It's really, it's fascinating. So that's like one of the easiest things for for families to to have on a regular basis would be yogurt, and I would put kefir, you know, kefir or kefir on that on that same level. Highly protective, really supportive of um, providing the microbiome with what's necessary for some of the most fundamental um, aspects of of healthy metabolism. Is store bought yogurt okay, or, or do you just recommend people do it at home? Well, look, that's the gold standard. I mean, I don't want to. <laughs> I don't want to lose too many of your listeners here because it could it can sound like it's really cumbersome or burdensome. But yes, I mean, the, the gold standard for yogurt would be one that would be made at 100 degrees Fahrenheit for 30 hours with that being, you know, using raw milk from a A2A2 dairy animal. That would be goat, sheep, or Guernsey cows. Those would be examples of A2A2 animals. If you make a uh, fermented dairy product from those animals, you get the most biologically compatible type of casein, which is known as this A2, A2 casein. Now that's the gold standard. You're making it from raw A2, A2 milk. You've got a starter or you're using a, like a tablespoon of a store-bought yogurt as your starter. That tends to work really well. Um, and you're keeping that at hundred degrees so that you're going to foster the, the, the growth of some families of bacteria, which might be a little more heat sensitive if you get up to one, you know, 115, 120. Now that's the gold standard. But to your point, Drew, your question, I should say, there's really good empirical evidence that even your store-bought yogurt, and look, I don't want anybody eating fruit sweetened yogurt that has, you know, like the layer of, of uh, fruit syrup on the bottom. But, you know, but listen, I, even that being said, there is statistical evidence that even that yogurt, because it contains live cultures, that is highly protective. So I think our, you know, your listeners have a really good array of choices um, when it comes to yogurt from those which they may have to seek out at a kind of a natural food store, at a farmer's market, you know, maybe from a local dairy where things are made there on site and they're made with, you know, like this A2A2 milk. But even if one were to go to a big box store and get uh, a store-bought yogurt, if it's got live cultures in it, especially bifido cultures, you know, they're going to be in good shape. John, there's so many myths and so much misinformation out there about food. For anybody trying to nourish themselves and their families on a deeper level, what are some basics really to keep in mind? 
Yeah, I mean, it's there is a um, so much misinformation, and it comes from different factions, on, you know, that are in the area of nutritional medicine. I would say the number one thing that people really need to wrap their heads around is that fat and cholesterol are actually really important for the human body, especially as we get older, as well as when we're developing during childhood. It's important for us to have saturated fat and monounsaturated fat as a big percentage of our calories, Drew. You know, whether that's coming from things like these full fat dairy products we were just speaking to or, um, you know, avocados, olive oil, um, butter, you, you name it, coconut, coconut products like coconut oil. Um, these are some of the most nourishing foods that we can eat. In addition to that, eggs, not only because of the cholesterol they contain, but the choline that's found in eggs. Um, really important for brain development and protecting our brains as we get older. And then if those, um, those types of fats and cholesterol-rich foods are consumed regularly and we get adequate amounts of sunlight, we convert the cholesterol in our, in our blood to a water-soluble form of cholesterol, which is very, very different than what most people have large circulating levels of. Most people have this more hydrophobic form or non-water soluble cholesterol in their circulation because there's not they're not going out in the sun so their bodies are unable to convert that cholesterol to cholesterol sulfate that's what happens in the skin when we get adequate sunlight and that cholesterol it it, it moves freely throughout the human body drew and it's um it's able to really incorporate itself into cell membranes um it just plays a huge role in our immune system's health so, I, you know, I, that's one of the most important things I really try to emphasize is the inclusion of saturated fat and monounsaturated fat rich foods and eating foods like eggs. Um, for others, you know, it might be if they, if they have an egg allergy, then they may want to consume something like squid, which sounds really esoteric. But, you know, squid and other mollusks are very high in cholesterol and some of those phospholipids that eggs are also rich in. That would be one of the most important principles I'd try to encourage folks to, uh, to accept. That's awesome, John. You know, another big issue is that there's so many deficiencies, nutritional deficiencies nowadays. It seems as though people are just breaking down. And I know you can't speak to anyone individually, but generally speaking, are there some key nutrients, vitamins, minerals, trace minerals that you think people might want to consider supplementing with? Yeah, absolutely. The big three, and I, I will speak to minerals and trace minerals because I think um, that's a great point that you're raising. Soil levels are depleted. Many folks have particular ways of eating that make it very difficult to acquire these minerals and trace minerals. Either it's because the plant forms of the minerals are not readily available or what we call bioavailable or the plants are grown in soils that are depleted. Um, you know, to a lesser extent, magnesium there's really good evidence that about three quarters of the American population is somewhat deficient in magnesium. And once that happens, Drew, you know, you name a, a tissue in the human body, it's compromised, whether it's our liver and detoxification enzymes, whether it's cardiovascular health and our blood pressure, the ability of blood vessels to dilate and accommodate fluctuations in blood pressure. A lot of that's governed by magnesium and muscle relaxation of the smooth muscle uh, artery walls. So magnesium is critical. I encourage people to supplement with magnesium probably, I would say more so than any other nutrient, just because of the evidence and what I see in food records or in the, the journals that people keep with respect to what they eat. People just don't eat enough really um, dark green magnesium rich foods. 
So I usually recommend people take, you know, anywhere from 200 to 300 milligrams of magnesium per day. And it should be magnesium glycinate um, or magnesium citrate, not magnesium oxide. That's a tough one for, for humans to absorb. Then the other nutrients, uh, zinc. Uh, zinc is really tough to get on an entirely plant-based diet because zinc is usually found in a, uh, a form where it's accompanied by phytates and phytates inhibit zinc absorption. So for folks that are relying heavily on beans and, and grains and things like almonds, zinc absorption is tough. Even though you might think you're consuming 15, gram, 15 milligrams of zinc per day, you might only be able to absorb you know, three or four milligrams of that because of the, the, the plant sources and the presence of these phytic acids. So I usually recommend people take somewhere around 10 to 15 milligrams of zinc per day if they don't eat things like grass-fed meat, um, shellfish, sardines. Organ meats are great for most trace minerals, but very few people eat organ meats anymore, Drew. Another trace mineral that's really important for health is selenium. Um, selenium is, is deficient in much of the soil here in the United States, and as well as in Canada, where a lot of our, our foods are grown. Um, selenium is very rich in seafood. It's also found in organ meats at high levels. Um, but people just tend not to get the amount of selenium that they need. It compromises us. It compromises, comp uh, compromises our thyroid. It compromises cardiovascular health. You name it. And, you know, I recommend that people take anywhere from 100 to 200 micrograms of selenium per day if they don't eat some of those real selenium-rich foods. How about Brazil nuts for selenium as well? Brazil nuts are a good source. <laughs> um, with Brazil nuts, yeah, you only really need one Brazil nut a day to, to accomplish that. That's a great source wow. for sure. And what about iodine? Is that something you still consider important? I do. I do. If someone doesn't eat seafood or anything from the ocean, I mean, seaweed is a great source um, of iodine. And people can rely heavily on things like dulse, for instance, um, alaria or kelp. Um, but in the absence of seafood or seaweed, it is important for people to consider taking at least some iodine every day. Again, there's really good evidence that iodine levels in our soils are very low, especially here on the eastern um, you know, on the east, east Coast or eastern side of this country, uh, iodine levels are low. And if someone has a diet, Drew, that's very rich in brassicas like broccoli, um, you know, kale, cauliflower, um, those types of vegetables contain um, a substance called a goitrogen. And it really inhibits the body's ability to, um, to use iodine and it requires that we consume even more. So I do, I would consider iodine to also be in that top tier of trace minerals to consider supplementing with. Usually people do well with anywhere from 500 to 1,000 micrograms per day. A lot of people don't need more than that, but occasionally I'll run into people where they don't respond to that and they need a, a few thousand micrograms to start to feel better and to have their thyroid glands start to work um, you know, on a, a more functional level. John, just to take this in a bit of a different direction. Do you have any daily practices that help to keep you sane, centered, and more peaceful? Yeah. I mean, in the winter, Drew, I, you know, I try to cross country ski every day. Um, you know, usually with my dogs and we go out and I try to go really hard for at least part of that. So I get some interval training in, I get to the point where I'm really breathless and you know, I feel so much better. Um, you know, with that daily practice, then on the days that I miss it, I really feel it. I don't feel as centered. Um, in, in these types of, uh, this type of season or warmer weather, I try to go for a swim 
just about every day. And I try to get out in the sun, whether I'm coaching baseball or I'm, you know, working around our, our farm or our animals. I try to get full, um, full sun exposure, at least on my upper body for an hour a day. And I, I do also feel a remarkable difference in how well I sleep and how I feel overall with that type of combination of sun and exercise. I mean, I think the sun is one of the most important determinants of human health, just like we talked about the importance of microbes and keeping your microbiome diverse and supported. It's the same way with sunlight. I mean, the more every single year we get more and more evidence that populations that miss out on sunlight and it goes way more than just the vitamin d story that's a very small part of the story it has a lot more to do with sulfation um, converting certain molecules in our skin like heparin sulfite heparin sulfate that's our natural um, blood thinner that we produce endogenously a lot of people know about heparin and they think it's only a drug but heparin sulfate is the blood thinner that we produce um, naturally and when we get out in the sun we keep our blood thinner. It promotes better circulation, better cardiovascular health. Um, there's just so much we could talk about. Maybe, you know, there's a time we could do that. But sunlight is critical, and I, I really miss it um, in the winter when here in Vermont we don't have that much sun. And so then I, I find like I'm compensating more with intense exercise um, out in nature and deep snow. And, that, and that's got its own, you know, own real unique benefits as well. Okay, final two questions, John. For, for anybody listening who's feeling a little powerless, a little hopeless about their future and their life, what would be one thing that they can do today to begin to take their life in a new direction? Yeah, I mean, I think there are so many stories out there, Drew, of individuals that have completely reversed either the condition that they were suffering from or the trend, the trend that their that trajectory of their health was on. You know, you've certainly done a remarkable job of, of showing that or reflecting personal stories in some of the documentaries you've made. Um, I think about the physician Terry Wall and her story, right? That's a remarkable story. And there's just countless examples of where people have just said, you know what, enough is enough. I don't like the way my life is going or the way I'm feeling. And they've been just really proactive in trying to adopt one new practice per week or maybe per month. And at the end of a year, they're a whole new person, literally. And I, you know, I think that's like probably one of the best things I could offer in the way of hope is that it's never too late, believe it or not. I mean, you know, for most chronic diseases, you've got this point of no return, but it's usually really far, far out there on, on, on that um, spectrum of where people fall. So I, I think that's important. And I think if people get out and they start to move every day and they start to sweat every day and, you know, they start to change their body's water by, by sweating, um, drinking enough fluid to change that most fundamental or basic component of their body's physiology, which is its water content. You know, that's, doesn't matter what um, facet or culture of, of the world you're in. I mean, everybody has appreciated for thousands of years the importance of changing their body's water, whether that was Native Americans spending time in a right in a in early form of sauna or, or, or hot lodge. And then you've got all the research from Scandinavian countries where people use saunas daily, right? They all have markedly better health outcomes and quality of life at any given age than folks that don't use saunas. So I think that's really important. Get out and sweat every day, drink enough fluid, um, 
adopt a more high fat, low carb diet. And I'll tell you what, Drew, without exception, everyone that I've ever worked with that's applied those basic principles to their daily life, they've come out in a much better place after just a few weeks. John, if you had the opportunity to travel back in time, say 35 to 40 years, what words of wisdom might your current self share with your younger self? Yeah, 35 or 40 years. That's right on, Drew. I would say, (laughs) you know, at that time, I think most Americans, let's say, were starting to adopt this message of low fat, high carb, you know, these multitude of, of whole grain servings per day. I would say take that message with a lot of caution. I think it took too many folks down the wrong path, and I, we're seeing the, the the impact of that now. So that would probably be that would probably be um, you know, and I like Bob Marley's quote: "Don't let them fool you, or even try to school you." That yeah, I think that took too many people in the wrong direction, and we're starting to see you know a lot of that message being reversed now, right? I mean, whether it's you know the USDA or it's different. Uh, different countries around the world. I mean, Australia, for instance, just really recently started recommending that folks start eating high fat dairy products daily as well as eggs because that government has recognized the scientific evidence where Australians that eat high fat dairy products and eggs live longer than those that abstain from them. So that's probably, um, I love that question. That's a great question. I wish I was asked that more. John, thank you so much, my friend. It is always such an honor to have you on the show. Buddy, it's great being with you. I love the work you do and keep it up, man. Thank you for listening to The Drew Perlman Show. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. In the words of Mark Twain, 20 years from now, you will be more disappointed by the things you didn't do than the things you did do. So throw off the bow line sail away from the safe harbor and catch the trade winds in your sails. Explore, dream, discover, and stay well, everyone.